0: Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Kelvin. This week on Fly on the Wall, we are bringing you an episode with geopolitics fellow Charlotte Clymer. Charlotte is a transgender activist who served in the U.S.
1: military from 2005 to to 2012, after which she became involved in LGBT advocacy work and political communications. She served as communications director for Catholics for Choice, press secretary for the human rights campaign, and recently signed a one-year exclusive contract with Substack to host her popular current events blog, Charlotte's Web Thoughts. So, Kelvin, what was most intriguing to you about the talk we had with Charlotte Climber?
0: Honestly, I really loved the talk we had about the Georgetown community and mm. how much it inspired her. How about you? Yeah, that's. I particularly
1: enjoyed discussing with her um, the impact of social media on our political discourse. I mean, as a professional political communicator who's active on Twitter and in the digital political communication space with her blog on, subspec- on Substack as well as other areas, it was interesting to hear her perspective on how damaging platforms like Twitter can be to our political discourse. Uh, I think of the people we've spoken with on the pod about social media and politics. She was one of the
0: most critical,
1: and I think that was a really interesting perspective to have.
0: Yeah, that was very in depth and reflective, Sam. But uh, before we hop into all of that goodness, follow us on social media. You can find us at Fly in the Wall Pod. You can also email our new official Georgetown email, flyonthewall at Georgetown.edu. A real Georgetown email address, Kelvin. Moving up in the world.
1: Honest to goodness. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed our you enjoy our conversation with GeoPolitics fellow Charlotte Clymer. Let's dive on in. Charlotte Clymer, thanks so much for joining us here on Fly on the Wall. We're so excited to have you. So excited to be here. Um, so you've worked in a variety of fields, both public in, in, politics and public service. Um, of course, you are a veteran, a service member. Um, you worked as communications director and strategist for um, Catholics for Choice, and of course, as a communications uh, director for the Human Rights Campaign. So, um, Press secretary. Press but, secretary, but excuse me. Yeah. basically, uh,
2: yeah.
1: And um, one of the most interesting parts of your background is you spent so much time in the military and then transitioned into the world of politics. Yeah. So tell us about that experience. How has your military background informed the work after that?
2: I think it crystallized a lot of things that I understood about American society implicitly, but hadn't experienced. You know, the thing about the military is that it's, it's a flawed institution, just like any other institution. There are a lot of folks who are well-intentioned and want to do right by others. And there are some folks who don't. And what was drawing to me about the military was that I knew racism existed, for example, but I didn't really witness it until I was in the military. I knew that misogyny was a huge problem. I didn't witness it firsthand until I was in the military. I knew homophobia, transphobia, things like that were a problem. But until you're around people your age who are very open about their bigotry, it, it doesn't really drive it home. And we're not talking like jokes. We're talking like sincere views that people have You know, less than... Uh, I would say wonderful things to say about those who don't look like them or have their own experiences. And so while I'm proud of my military service, I think it's been far more influential for me in understanding that we live in a complicated world and that the only way we're going to progress is understanding where other folks are coming from, even if we disagree with them and recognizing problems where they exist. And, you know, the military is a very flawed institution and we need to do better at reforming it. So in true comms person fashion, you
0: kind of already answered our next question. (laughs) But uh, we think we'd like to go into more detail into what led you to Washington, D.C. after your time in
2: service. So I came here by accident. Uh, I was uh, medically retired from the military in 2012. And I was at Walt's Reed at the time getting medical treatment. I had a lot of friends here already because I had been stationed in the DC area and I kind of decided just to stay here. I worked at the Holocaust museum for a year, uh, after prodding from, uh, uh, a, f- a few folks at Georgetown schools of continuing studies, they, uh, reached out to me and said, Hey, you should, you know, pursue your degree. And they were right. So I took a GI bill, uh, went to Georgetown. And the thing is, is that I just kind of built a home here. And exactly. honestly, what's that?
0: Hoya That's right, Hoya <laughs> Saxa,
2: absolutely. And I love this school. Like, I genuinely love Georgetown. I just think it's a wonderful community. It has really produced so many great leaders across a variety of fields. Um, and I'm not, talking about, I'm not even talking about President Clinton. I'm talking about just the amazing alumni that come from literature, politics, uh, art generally, um, you know, business. I mean, international relations. It, it, it's so remarkable to me where you can see Georgetown's face in the world, which is everywhere. And so I wanted to be part of that. And I'm so glad that I've made that decision. I stayed here because District of Columbia is just a wonderful place to live. Most people perceive D.C. as this marble center. You have the Lincoln Memorial, the White House, the Smithsonian's. When you get outside of that, that's the good stuff in D.C. Going to Columbia Heights and going to Anacostia DuPont. I mean, all these great neighborhoods that are full of history and culture and just wonderful people who just want to share their gifts with the world. That's why I love the district. Mm. And
1: do you mind if I pull on a strand that you mentioned um, in one of your answers? There? You mentioned how the military as an institution, as many institutions, um, needs reform. And you know, in your geopolitics discussion group, um, you know, I think your last topic was called something along the lines of you know, leftists and liberals. And so I'm curious, um, in your view, you know, a lot of, right now, on the hilltop and in Washington DC, the conversations we're having a lot are, you know, reform or entirely reconstruct. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts as to, especially from a DC context, how do you work within institutions to effect change versus when is it time to, to get out because the institutions has such fundamental flaws.
2: Yeah, it depends on depends on what route you want to take and we need both. We need people who work inside and we need people who work outside. Congresswoman AOC has been uh, quite insightful on this and talking about inside outside strategy. And I think a lot like her I tend to kind of veer into the middle. I think sometimes it's really potent to work on the inside and sometimes it's really good to be on the outside spurring folks to change and we need both. We you know, there's no way that Um, for example, the president can be an outside person, right? And honestly, most members of Congress can't do that either. They have to work with each other. But for advocates and activists, that's our job is to push change and get people to rethink how they do things. We need both. We needed Malcolm X, just like we need Dr. King. Um, you know, we needed, uh, we needed different groups, uh, or different leaders with inside every movement to push and pull against the status quo. Um, and we can't do anything unless we have those two competing approaches. We really need both.
0: So, uh, as a transgender person, uh, you represent a perspective that is, uh, frankly, if I might say, uh, missing, kind of missing in politics, Mm -hmm. kind of, uh, marginalized. And Our question is, what is in general your experience as being a transgender person, both like the military and in the political sphere?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was closeted in the military. And Mm -hmm. what I find is interesting is that there are some cis people who think that just because you're not out doesn't mean that you aren't experiencing, I would say pain from being a trans person, Mm -hmm. which is not true at all. Being in the closet is excruciating, especially in a hyper-masculine environment like the military. And not just the military, but I went, Army infantry, which is like the most performatively masculine of of you know any uh, part of the military, and the reason I went that way was because I felt it was more honorable to do the grunt work. In fact, infantry are literally called grunts. That's the nickname for us. And I went in there because I didn't want to take a desk job. I didn't want to take the easy way out. It would have been, I you know, I I got an almost perfect score on my ASVAB. It would have been very easy just to go intelligence or become a translator. That was completely open to me. But I saw the infantry as, I suppose, a way of sharing a sacrifice with others. Even if I disagreed with the war in Iraq, which I did, I thought it was completely legal invasion. But at the time I went in because I didn't want to miss this moment of trying to be part of a solution. Now, I think a lot of your colleagues and classmates are gonna listen to this and be like, well, why would you join the military to be part of a solution? Like (laughs) if it was a legal invasion, it doesn't make sense. I think at the time you had to understand what it means to be in an environment where the military is the greatest thing you can do. And for a lot of poor folks, especially from rural and I would say more conservative parts of this country, the military is the best thing you can do. It's not going to college, it's you know not becoming a CEO of a Fortune 500 company, it's service. and. In my mind, since the military was not gonna be abolished and it will never be abolished, I want to be very clear about that. I, I know some of your classmates are hoping it will, and just, I just want to say it's not gonna happen. So what we have to do is go inside and change it. Or stay outside and change it, because we need that too. But at the time I just thought, you know, my path is going in there and making things better. And I think in some ways I have. You know, I was part of the folks who advocated for a pill of don't ask, don't tell. You know, I, I was part of the, fo- you know, the the group who, you know, called for the combat exclusion policy on women to be lifted. Um, you know, and of course, I was, you know, part of the efforts to get the trans ban repealed. At the same time, there are so many problems with the military that I have worked on that are not being addressed, that, that have to be addressed over time. For example, the undercurrent of white supremacy in the military, or maybe at this point overcurrent, if I'm being honest, The fact that sex crimes in the military are prosecuted by military courts, not civilian courts. So, you know, a rapist could be convicted by a jury of his own peers in the military, and a commander could overturn that unilaterally without justification, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's a military court, not a civilian court. I mean, there are so many things wrong with the military that we have to fix, but the one thing that can't happen is, you know, we're not going to get rid of it. So we might as well fix it and make it more ethical and just.
1: I'd love to zoom in on a particular moment of your activism um, related to um, you know, being a transgender person in a military context. You gave an impassioned speech um, during your time with the human rights campaign um, criticizing the Trump administration's transgender service member ban.
2: The ban has been publicly and resoundingly opposed by military leadership because they've seen this before. We all have. The same arguments about fitness and medical care and budget problems and unit cohesion have been said before in the history of this country. They barred men of color, they barred women, they barred gay, lesbian, and bisexual people. We have been at this intersection of fear, cynicism, and outright ignorance many times. Our country and military are stronger for having ended those other forms of discrimination, and it will be stronger for ending this form of discrimination. Mark my words on that.
1: Bring us to that moment up to that podium, what did you feel? And what was the significance of that particular
2: political fight? Well, you know, at the time, the war on terror was in its 17th year, I believe. This was 2018, 2019. Yeah, that sounds right. And you had all these trans people serving honorably, doing a great job, no issues. In fact, the head of every branch, so basically the general of the army, the admiral of the navy, et cetera, they had all testified before Congress and said, no, we have no issues with trans people serving, and ever since we allowed trans people to openly serve, there have been no problems. And yet, the Trump administration overruled them, they overruled medical experts, they overruled um, you know, feminist groups that spoke up in favor of trans people, and they just said, no, this makes us uncomfortable, so we're going to get rid of it. In fact, the initial reason that Trump gave was that it would be a fiduciary burden on the military to pay for trans health care. When in fact, trans healthcare is less than a fraction of a percent of the overall healthcare budget. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not even talking about the military budget. I'm talking about the healthcare budget of the military. It's less than a fraction of a percent of the total healthcare budget. Uh, so it's not a burden, clearly. It doesn't make sense. Um, and I I was so heartbroken by the fact that I I knew there are LGBTQ people and specifically trans non-binary people who are closeted statistically buried in Arlington Cemetery there just are and yet their sacrifice is being denigrated by this man who not only didn't have the courage to serve but actively avoided service even while ostensibly supporting uh military service right because that's what rich people do in this country is they send poor people to die for their wars mm-hmm. and Trump is exactly of that ilk and so I was going to be damned if I sat aside and let him criticize, you know, my siblings who had given their lives to this country only to be told that they were somehow a cancer on our military and our armed services. And I just, I couldn't do that.
1: So one of the more nuanced aspects of your, of your career is, is your work as communications director for Catholics for choice. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, obviously, you know, we're at a Jesuit institution here at Georgetown. Um, and I'm curious, um, how does, how does your faith inform your work in public
2: service, um,
1: and what was it like working for that organization?
2: Yeah, um, well, faith has been a part of my life for a very long time. You know, I, I'm i not Catholic, by the way. A lot of people think I am because I worked for Catholics for Choice. I'm Episcopalian, mm. which is like, in terms of theology, Catholic light. You know, we have the same liturgical calendar. We worship the same saints. Uh, I, I, I went from Catholic to Episcopalian. Yeah. Similarly Catholic light. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and I think Catholics will enjoy this joke too. I mean, it's, it's like Catholicism without all the shame, you know, and, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that's what I felt would be a great way to reach to other people who may not understand trans folks. For me, I saw an opportunity to work on pro-choice policies from a faith perspective. And I never had that opportunity before because I've never worked at a religious nonprofit or a religious organization and being someone who is, you know, very committed to my faith and you know christ is someone whose example i try to emulate you know and often fail to uh but i at least try and i found this as the kind of opportunity to do some good in the world by channeling my faith now in the broader sense faith has always been at the center of my political beliefs like i i'm anti-poverty because i'm christian
3: Mm.
2: i am you know pro-choice because i'm christian i am you know pro-lgbtq because i'm christian i am you know generally against just about every fast of war because i'm christian you know all these things stem from the things that christ literally said in the bible like he he warns against you know the uh the terrible specter of wealth and the way it, it completely consumes people and deteriorates communities he preached against uh, war he preached against judging others uh or the experiences they have that are traumatic. I mean, there are so many things he says that are completely ignored by right. the conservative right in religious circles. And a lot of us who are on the left and Christian feel the need to push back against that. You know, being a Catholics for Choice was a great opportunity, and I'm really grateful for that time.
0: So, uh, your communications career has brought you to many organizations, namely Emily's List, HRC, Catholics for Choice. Is there a common thread between these that made them speak out to you, or is it just like a part of the situation that brought you there?
2: Well, they're all about personal autonomy, right? Emily's list is, you know, an organization that was created to elect pro-choice, um, democratic women. I think that was the basis of it. Catholics for Choice is the same thing. It's it's working to you know uh, safeguard pro-choice rights of all people, uh, you know, regardless of background. And the Human Rights Campaign is about safeguarding autonomy. All these organizations are about protecting the natural rights of people. Like, I should have decisions over my own health (laughs) care. You know, no one should make that decision for me. And it is absurd to me that anyone would be so arrogant as to believe that they should dictate the health care of another person based on their own religious beliefs. It's ridiculous. So we all have... I believe a responsibility to speak out against that, and to center personal autonomy and individual liberty in all people. So when conservatives say individual liberty, that's what I bring up. Like, why would you be okay with the government regulating what people do in their be- in their bedrooms, or you know, what doctors are allowed to, uh, I suppose, implement in terms of you know, caring for trans non-binary children? It makes no sense to me at all.
1: So, looking more broadly at at the political dialogue in Washington D.C. right now, yep. um, and you know, if you walked out and just stopped someone on the street and said, you know, which which is the party or which side of the political spectrum is the one that thinks about faith and religion as informing its values more, chances are someone would say, oh, you know, the conservatives or the or the Republicans or the right are mm-hmm. are, are zeroed in on that, um, and we sort of have at least depicted in in the media this sort of idea of like a sort of more like cosmopolitan secular left but clearly from your experience um that's not the case so why do you think in our in our political discourse right now there seems to be this 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 divide and this right-wing monopolization of the use of of faith as a justification for
2: policy well it's a it's a bad faith premise you know mm-hmm. that religious conservatives put forward uh, the, the supposed idea that they're defending freedom of religion when in fact what they're doing is promoting their own belief system over everybody else you know, so there are conservatives in Congress who refuse to pass the Equality Act because they claim that churches will have to um, basically condone LGBTQ people or accept them and I don't think I've heard anyone say that anywhere. It's It's not about that. It's about the fact that Religious conservatives are forcing people outside of their own belief system to live by their own values, like live by these rigid conservative political values and uh, biblical values. And I, I just think it's complete nonsense. Like, why are hmm. we honoring this shitty premise? It's just ridiculous. Like, we, we're all adults here. We're all rational. There is nothing that trans people are doing or LGBTQ people are doing overall that is oppressing the religion of another person. Mm-hmm. I mean, ask your ask your classmates. I'd would love to know an example of where that happens because I've been doing this work for a long time and I've yet to find a salient example. Mm.
0: So you mentioned uh, a lot about your previous work and how long you've been like in the business, but. Uh, social media has been a very rising force in the field of comms. And so what we've seen through social media is that it's been an avenue for both individuals and groups across the globe to amplify their voices. But on the other hand, we've also seen the darker side of these platforms. Example, the January 6th attacks. As someone of experience in digital political comms, how do you balance the democratization of people's voices? with the risk of political polarization and pain that it causes.
2: Well, it would help if social media companies were honest about what they're doing, you know. Facebook has basically lied to the public about everything they've done. Uh, They claim to be fixing the problem. They claim to be working on it in good faith. And, I mean, it's clearly been revealed that they weren't. They were exploiting our divisions in order to get richer. That's Mm -hmm. what Facebook was doing. Twitter is very much the same in some ways. You know, they... They didn't kick off Trump, even though he violated terms of service countless times, because he's the titular head of the conservative movement uh, in, well, not titular, but the de facto head of the conservative movement in the United States is, you know, the head of the Republican Party. And they didn't want to piss off, you know, a wide swath of, uh, you know, the folks who were on the site, because that would mean they might leave the site, less ad revenue, et cetera. And so they made a decision to continue platforming Trump until the January 6th attack and the aftermath. But the fact that it took that long Mm -hmm. to make it, I mean, this is a man who has said the most awful things about marginalized communities on Twitter. Not in back rooms, not like, you know, I heard from someone, from someone else that Trump said this, you know, at a party. No, he said these things on Twitter in black and white, and the fact that it took so long to exercise accountability over that, it, it looks really terrible for Twitter. And so, even though Facebook is is so much more awful, I don't want Twitter to get off scot-free here, you know, mm-hmm. even though it's kind of made my career in many ways. By the way, I would give up everything, everything, to take back all the damage that social media has done. Mm-hmm. Like, I would trade in my career, the notoriety, whatever the hells I've gotten through Twitter, if it meant that we could go back 20 years and just either regulate social media in a way that makes sense, mm-hmm. or just not have it at all, because... In the grand scheme of things, social media has been a net negative. It just has. And the only reason I'm still on social media is because it is the front line of disinformation. If, if people like me aren't on there to push back against blatant lying, that disinformation is just going to get spread more and more. So if it weren't for that, I wouldn't be on there. And I would encourage anyone listening to this, like, get off Twitter, get off Facebook. Just do it. You will be so much happier. It's, just, it, it's not worth it
1: you know, we've asked a lot of guests this question about social media and its in, impact on our culture and our politics. Um, and can we I think you're the first one that says that social media has been a net negative. I yeah. And sure. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm
2: probably, well, yeah, I'm the only one among the cohort who I think is so strongly identified with social media. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, Amna, uh, Brian, all these wonderful folks. I mean, they're they're incredible. Uh, Ambassador Lighthouser, I've had such great conversations with all of them, Rory and Rebecca. But you know, take it from me, social media is not worth it. If there's a way to get rid of it, or at least, or at least treat it like a public utility, that is one thing I do agree with. You know, some Republicans on is that we should turn it into a public utility. But unless we do that, it's just going to get worse and worse.
1: Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I sort of struggle with when thinking about social media and how we're how we're using it in our politics is um, you know on the one hand you know from the Facebook files that just dropped and um, and Twitter's choice to de platform former president Trump and things like that is this these calls for increased accountability but then how do we you know in a hundred years from now are there going to be voices out here who are pushing for change that maybe in retrospect you know be it social media companies or the government if, it, if social media becomes more of a public utility were silenced when in hindsight those were exactly the voices that that we should have heeded i mean we think of all kinds of voices that were regarded as radical in their day Mm. um Mm. that now decades from now looking back we said oh maybe that's the direction we should have been going
2: well what do you mean like give me an
1: example well i'm you know i think about you know mlk was wiretapped by the fbi yeah um and you know and and you know he was regarded as as incendiary and, and dangerous
2: at the time. And his polling was terrible. Like most Americans at the time of MLK's death, uh, thought he was you know not a, not a great public figure. Like his mm-hmm. his approval rating was terrible. I mean, here is this man who is arguably the greatest I would say, and not just religious leader in American history, but arguably the greatest ethical leader in American history. Mm-hmm. Who was widely seen as a troublemaker and even a terrorist mm-hmm. by mm-hmm. by many white Americans in this country. Um, and yet now he's celebrated. And even as recently as the 80s when the you know Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. became law, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Day became federal law, there were still Republicans uh, in Congress who opposed it
3: mm-hmm.
2: using mm-hmm. the same exact slander that was used against MLK at the time of his death. Mm. So now you're asking if 50 years from now there will be similar people, I think that a lot of the Black Lives Matter activists are going to be in history books. You mm-hmm. know, uh, folks like Doray McKeeson, Brittany Pack Cunningham, uh, you know, all these amazing folks who have stepped up uh, and called the world to its own conscience. They're going to be well known to history. Uh, even though the, a wide swath of the American public uh, you know, doesn't support them now. So, history will prove them right.
1: Mm.
2: Does that answer your question?
1: It does. Well, and I guess my concern is for the blind spots that that we have right now that we probably can't see now, but maybe, you know, 50 years from now, the next generation will be, you know, when we talk about social media in tandem with that, how do we mm. make sure that, you know, voices that we regard as, as radical or dangerous or polarizing mm. aren't those same voices that in 50 years from now we look back on and say, man, we shouldn't have... You know, deplatform them, or we shouldn't have. You know, had Congress or social media executives hold them to account at the time because their ideas were radical to where we are in twenty twenty one. So it's
2: in an interesting. Co- it's it's an interesting question, but it's a very broad hypothetical. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I would need like a more concrete example. Like, is there someone you believe is going to be well more well known fifty years from now that is kind of seen as radical and incendiary?
1: Well, no one in particular. I mean, my concern is that, you know, as every generation does, we don't have the benefit of hindsight and history. Yeah.
2: yeah. So who, who but we it? do understand human rights.
3: Mm-hmm. You
2: know, we do understand what it means to have control over our own destinies. And there are a lot of people on Twitter and I will, you know, very directly say in the conservative movement who quite literally want to control other people. I don't mean that, you know, they want to order them to do something. I mean, they want to control their health care, where they live, who they have sex with, you know, what families they plan uh, what they wear, uh, the fact that, you know, until a couple of years ago, black women were, you know, basically let go from jobs on Capitol Hill for not wearing, uh, for not wearing a, um, a, uh, f- basically for wearing the opposite of a natural hairstyle, mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are so many attacks on the fundamental right of personal autonomy. And to me, there's no, there's no one arguing against that. That's going to be, that's going to be like, A great exemplar of character 50 years from now Mm -hmm. these folks are shouting into the wind so so uh what i'm kind of getting
0: at you saying you're saying we have the framework to understand what is right we do and Mm -hmm. that framework is through personal autonomy and liberty things you especially emphasize throughout your career
2: that's right i think the most overused phrase is you know he's 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 from a or he or she are from a different generation Mm -hmm. Mm. that's that's such a ridiculous thing you know uh, in lincoln's time there were people making cohesive, well-known arguments against the institution of slavery. Mm -hmm. And yet, we still have people who look back on that time and excuse white people who heard those arguments and still went along with slavery because deviating away from the status quo would be too hard for them. We have the same damn challenge right now. We have people who seriously believe that there are merits to be found in controlling other people's bodies Mm -hmm. or telling them who they can marry or, you know, saying that LGBTQ people can't adopt or that, you know, it's totally fine if an unarmed black person is shot to death by police when getting pulled over because, you know, they should have complied more. I don't know what that means, by the way. They should have complied more. For me, it's just uh, yet another example of... Cognitive dissonance between the uh, world that a lot of white conservatives want to build and the reality of what their policies actually do
0: And uh kind of to bring this conversation back full circle when we talked about that speech you gave for the hrc Against the transgender uh, military service Then you mentioned that these are the same arguments. They used against women in the military. Yeah. and other members of the LGBTQ uh, plus community in the military So uh, I can see how your rhetoric still matches up. We know, and we have the framework, basically.
2: We do, we do. And you know, in that speech, I gave it to CBS Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. And I guess I was honestly surprised by how many emails I got from people who didn't really pay attention a lot to LGBTQ issues and had no idea about that. They, I swear to God, they were unaware that there was a time when black people could not serve the military that there was a time when we literally had racially segregated units in the military, when there there was a time when not so recently women couldn't be in every job in the military for no other reason than their women. Mm. Not because of their abilities, not because of, you know, who they are, but literally because they have the letter F standing for female on their DD-214, which is their, which is, you know, a military record. I mean, it's, It's atrocious how much we live in an era of bad faith and how much bad faith is, uh, left unaccountable.
1: So, given all these issues that, um, that we've been discussing, every week you're here in the Institute of Politics, um, meeting with students, um, talking about these issues, so... Um, and obviously you're a Hoya alum as well. So talk to you, so talk to us, what brought you back to the hilltop? How have your discussion groups been going? And what conversations and questions are you excited to address this semester?
2: Well, first of all, and I, I want to be clear about this, and y'all already know I'm pretty honest, um, I love Georgetown. I think it's mm-hmm. one of the greatest universities in the country. And not even based on, you know, it's it's obvious elite academic prowess. I'm not, ta- I'm, ta- I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about the community that is built out of Georgetown, like those Jesuit values. I'm not a Jesuit, I'm not Catholic, but... Mm-hmm. You know that tradition of service to others, empathy, you know, really wanting to build a world where where everyone feels included and no one is left behind. That's what I want to see happen. Mm-hmm. And Georgetown did such a great job of, I suppose, articulating a vision which that can, in which that can happen. Um, and you know, I gotta say, being back here, it's been incredible to see how much things have not changed in that regard. Mm. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that I could sit and talk with conservative students who have very different views from me, Mm -hmm. but they discussed them in good faith, they discussed them respectfully. Uh, you know, we, we certainly had disagreements, but it was so wonderful to disagree with someone and not let that be the end of the conversation, that you can find humanity even in those disagreements. No one does, no one does it better than a Georgetown, Mm -hmm. in my, in my humble view.
0: I guess to kind of change gears, uh, you kind of mentioned, uh, your political predictions.
2: Yeah. So uh, we're
0: kind of wondering, midterms, right around the corner. GOP is kind of struggling to define itself, and uh, its relationship to Trump, and uh, the different rings of the Democratic Party are kind of at war with each other. Yeah. So what are you watching from both sides of the aisle as they prepare for the midterms in 2024?
2: Oh gosh, I mean, where do we even start? Well, I mean, as you all know, the, the typical thing that happens is that the party who has the president at the time typically loses seats in Congress during the midterms. So president gets elected and then their party typically loses seats in the following midterms. Um, That, that is just something that almost always happens. There are a few examples of when it didn't happen. President Bush had a pretty good year in 2002. President Clinton had a pretty good year in 1998, even in the midst of scandal and whatnot. Uh, But regardless, you know, that's usually what happens. And so, I fully expect that Democrats will probably lose the House next year. I personally think they'll win the Senate. But more important to me is these little smaller squabbles within the caucuses, right? So you have Congresswoman Cheney, who has spoken out against her party about the January 6th attack. You know, recently uh, gave an interview in which she said, I was wrong on same-sex marriage. And I shouldn't have been against it. And, you know, she clearly is trying to make amends for that. And and she mentioned trans folks, which was surprising. Now, <laughs> I have my own views on Congresswoman Cheney, but it's good to see folks moving in a positive direction in that way. So the thing that's going to be interesting to look at there is if anyone's going to follow her lead in terms of voters. Like, is she going to win her seat back for standing up and having a moment of character? Uh, and if she does win it, where is she going to fit in the overall apparatus of the Republican Party when she is clearly at war with its leader.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Arguably the most popular party leader since Reagan. Mm-hmm. Like you can you can say anything you want about Trump, and I certainly have a hell of a lot of things to say about him that are not so nice, but he has full control of the Republican Party right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, if he said jump, anyone would say how high, except for Congresswoman Cheney. And so I'm interested to see how that works out. On the other side, the thing that I'm looking at, and what what the midterms will really clarify, is who is going to be our nominee in 2024, for the Democratic mm-hmm. Party. You know, I expected a couple of years ago that President Biden, um, or I'm sorry, let me let me back up. I expected when President Biden launched his campaign that he would only do one term. No, he didn't. He never said that. He I think he alluded to the possibility, or like one of his staffers linked that he might do one term. But even without that, I think a lot of us assumed he would just serve one term and let someone else take over. Mm -hmm. And lately, I don't know, because there's no one who is clearly the obvious uh, heir to that seat. I mean, you have have Vice President uh, Kamala Harris, who I think is an extraordinary leader. I have so much I respect about her. Uh, She hasn't really gained her solid footing yet you know, and and that could be for any reason not related to herself. That could be because of racism, sexism, what have you. Regardless, you know, she has not been kind of that visible, vibrant presence in the Democratic Party right now. And even if it's no fault of her own, that's really casting doubt on her prospects for 2024. Now, so much could change by then, you know? I mean, even, even, I mean, we're looking at, you know, we're, we're in the beginning of October of this year, and next month are the uh, elections in Virginia for mm-hmm. governor and state house and all that. I mean, that's like 30 news cycles. Mm. That's a lifetime. You know how much can happen in a month politically? Mm-hmm. People's careers can be made and broken in that time. So, what we're looking at right now is like two and a half years away. Or, and and theoretically, I mean, we're really looking at just 12 months away before people start announcing for, you know, presidential or forming their exploratory committees. Mm -hmm. And so everyone who's looking at 2024 has a very short window to make their case before they formally announce. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I haven't seen anyone in the Democratic Party who is an obvious choice to take over from President Biden. And it makes me wonder if President Biden is going to go for a second term, Mm -hmm. which, Mm -hmm. which would be very surprising but, I mean, I, I, don't know, I don't know any other alternative now. But there's a lot of time until then, so we'll see what happens. Mm. Also, let me, let me point this out real quick. Ignore the polling. <laughs> <laughs> polling is useless. <laughs> Poll, there, there are polls from last week that are already obsolete. Right? Like, okay, yes, they can be useful in some ways. They do have utility in certain aspects. But if you're trying to get a sense of who's going to be president you know 3 years from now based on polling right now it's just it's a waste of time even primary polls are a waste of time at this moment it's just not worth it so you know if you're if you're looking at polls and fretting and stressing out over it let me just reassure you that you know it don't put yourself through that it's meaningless it's useless mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: well so given the rapid pace of the news cycle on how much can change, I got an even tougher question for you. Okay.
2: And then it's the lightning round,
1: so then it gets easier. But, um, okay. <laughs> so, um, zooming out from from political futures more to um, the future of LGBTQ plus issues, mm-hmm. um, generally, you know, it feels like, you know, ever since, um, you know, the Supreme Court uh, made gay marriage accessible nationwide, mm-hmm. you know, in 2015, it feels like LGBTQ issues are are more at the forefront, or more or salient than they were um, before then. And so I'm just wondering, from your professional perspective, where do you think we'll be as a country in four years, ten years, and what issues mm-hmm. and questions should we be pushing on right now?
2: Well, I want to be really clear about this. Uh, for folks who may not know a lot about LGBTQ politics, the state of LGBTQ rights in this country is abhorrent. Mm-hmm. And they're not little things. Um, you know, Reuters did a poll a couple of years ago where they asked respondents two questions, American respondents, right? And the first question they asked is, do you agree that there should be federal protections against LGBTQ discrimination universally? And I think like something like 70, 75% of respondents said yes, including almost half of Republicans. So clearly Americans are like, yeah, don't discriminate against LGBTQ people. Second question was, do federal protections exist? against anti-LGBTQ discrimination, and they don't. They don't. The Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, and last year they made it illegal to discriminate against LGBTQ people in employment. But that's it.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: In most states right now, if I move to Missouri and I wanted to rent an apartment as a trans person, the landlord could say, sorry, you're trans, I don't rent to trans people. And that is completely legal. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: If I were a cis gay white man, like the you know, arguably the most privileged, well, no, the most privileged person in the LGBTQ community. And I went to say Texas. Um, like let's say College Station. And I wanted to buy a house with my hard earned money, a landlord could say no. Mm-hmm. You know, an owner could say no, I don't want to rent a gay man. Sorry. That's legal, folks, right now in the United States. Mm-hmm. It's legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people in most of the United States in public accommodations, like you know, going to get a wedding cake from a shop. Um, and that's what's so remarkable to me is that no one would ever be okay with discriminating against someone in goods or services based on their religion, or well, maybe not, because you know there are there is certainly a lot of discrimination faced by Muslims and Jewish folks and those who are not Christians, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is a lot of discrimination that would never be tolerated that is currently tolerated for LGBTQ people. And the fact that folks can say with a straight face, pun intended, that, you know, they are completely fine and see no problem with LGBTQ people being discriminated against in the public square is, it just, it astonishes me. It really does. There's a lack of public education, first of all. Mm -hmm. But moreover, there's a lot of bad faith arguments that this is about freedom of religion, and it's never been about freedom of religion. There is nothing in the Bible that says trans people are sinful. Even the passages that say homosexuality is sinful when they're put into context make absolutely no sense, right? Uh, And we know this. Like, those of us who have studied theology know this. And yet, this same reasoning is used to prevent LGBTQ people from, you know, owning property, taking leadership positions, uh, until recently getting married. Um, You know, there are still LGBTQ people who face discrimination in the workplace who don't feel like they can report it. I mean, across the board, there are problems. We are living right now in 2021 in the deadliest year on record for trans people. Uh, Dave Chappelle just put out a special a couple days ago in which he said that JK Rowling is great and that he's proud to be a TERF. And he argued that somehow this is distracting away from, or that it's unjust that we talk about trans people and not about anti-black discrimination. Here's the fact. Most, like the vast majority of violence and discrimination against LGBTQ people and specifically trans people are inflicted on black queer people and specifically black trans women. Mm -hmm. Black women make up almost all the murders of trans people in the United States and nearly half of the total LGBTQ murders in the United States. Mm. I mean, LGBTQ rights is a black issue. And, you know, I normally wouldn't talk about black issues as a white person because it's not my lane. But that is one thing I will resolutely say. Like, when we talk about anti-LGBTQ violence and discrimination, we're really talking about the ways that, you know, queer people of color and specifically black trans people are completely treated like third class citizens in the United States. Mm -hmm. So... There is obviously a problem public education and good faith disagreement, and we are just not even close to having the kind of discussion that is needed here. To lighten the moon just a tiny little
0: bit, <laughs> uh, we present to you the lightning round. Yes. A round where we ask quick questions and hopefully get quick answers. So our first question for you, as a gene Politics Fellow and a fellow lawyer. What's your go-to place to eat on or around the George business? I'm very
2: basic. The Mm. cafe in the ICC.
0: Okay, so, I mean,
1: clearly from this interview, we talked a lot about pretty heavy, serious topics. Mm. Um, Politics, especially politics on Twitter, can get pretty brutal. So what do you do to unwind after a long, hard day? I drink.
2: (laughs) I drink with friends. Mm. That Mm -hmm. is my answer. Mm. Okay.
0: Yeah, that's a common political.
2: I drink responsibly with friends. (laughs) Yes, uh, which you should also do. And if you're underage, you should not drink. (laughs) I'll make that clear. Well done. Covering all the bases. That's
0: (laughs) right. And our final question for you is: What's one book that you think
2: everyone should read? Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. I mean, just absolutely brilliant. This is not a lightning round answer, so I'll just be more elaborate. I Mm -hmm. mean. This is a man who i deeply deeply respect and not just for his you know commentary on uh i would say issues of race but specifically how he has stood by lgbtq people in a way that's not pandery or performative just because he knows it's the right thing to do and he was very honest about all this in his book anyway that's the book you should read between the world and me it's on these mm. very immediate answer <laughs> You 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 had weren't ready with that I was fun. ready. It's a, it's a damn good book. And there are many others, but that's a good one.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, sure, thank you so much for joining us on Fly the mm-hmm. Wall. It's been a pleasure um, yep. talking to you and, of course, having you here at GU
2: Politics One awesome more thing. Sure. Register to vote. Mm-hmm. Register mm-hmm. to okay. vote.
1: And you can register to, to vote through the GU Votes Initiative through the Institute of Politics. Go on our website. It's easy to do. It's, ah, it's beautiful. <laughs> Hoya Saxa. Hoya, Hoya, Hoya Saxa. <laughs> thanks for listening in on our conversation with charlotte climber if you're part of the georgetown community make sure you join charlotte climber's discussion group advocacy and
0: communication in the post-obama era and most importantly make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast to absolutely podcast. yeah exactly next week we'll be airing our conversation with pbs NewsHour correspondent amna nawaz so if you want to be the first to hear it Follow us on social media at FlyOnTheWallPod for the latest updates. Thanks for hearing the buzz with The
1: Fly, and we'll catch you next week.